trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. I am so glad you could join us. I'm going to make it worth your while today. In fact, I'm going to really make it worth your while. Ammon Bundy joins me by telephone. Ammon, great to have you on the program. Thank you, Brian. So it's it's been a while since you and I have talked, but uh, I, I caught wind that you are actually making a pretty prolonged speaking circuit here in my home state of, of Utah. You have uh, already spoken in Logan and last night at Liberty Hall in Ogden. Um, talk to me about why you are on the road. You're going to be doing this through the end of next week. What brings you to Utah, and, and who are you speaking to, and for what purpose? So, yeah, I started uh, on Monday, and I've uh, been going through Utah. I'm going to hit several different places, uh, six different places here this week, and then five different er- areas next week. Uh, and I, I felt like I... Uh, had the time or needed to make the time and get in an RV and just get talking to people and helping people understand the situation that we are really in and also what are what are the solutions and as you know um, People's Rights is a network that's been established actually across the nation now and uh, Utah has 11 areas and so I thought I would take it up on myself and go visit uh, each of those areas and speak to them and anybody else who wanted to come. So when, when you are helping to organize people and you say to, to help make them aware of our current situation, Ammon, I'm going to ask you to be just as, as direct as possible. Um, the situation we're talking about is that we are losing control of government at every level of our lives and and it's it's not something that can be safely ignored i now correct me if i'm wrong but but if someone had to say what's the situation that's how i would put it w- would you agree disagree yeah i mean we are we're in an awful situation right now where government does not believe in any way that they have any bounds they think that they can uh, those in government think that they can control our lives, our bodies, uh, our businesses, our churches. They believe that they can control uh, when we can travel, uh, how we can travel. Um, All the fundamental everyday liberties that we've enjoyed most of our lives, um, they believe that they have control of that. And what I mean by that is they want us to get permission first, or they want be able to uh, mandate how those uh, how that, those liberties are used. And when a people, a society, get into that situation, it becomes very dangerous. And uh, I'm trying to awaken people to that, uh, help them understand, look, the only person that has a right to decide what you're going to do with your body is you, not government officials. Uh, same with your business. Same with how you worship. Same with where you travel. Those things are, are fundamental freedoms that have been secured in this country for 
uh, a couple centuries now, and we are we are literally losing them right in front of our face. They are diminishing. Something that I know you have firsthand experience with is the power of just ordinary people coming together to stand up for one another, to peacefully protect one another, um, you know, when, when someone is being abused. It doesn't have to be happening to you to make it an illegitimate use of government power or, you know, an example of tyranny. And when people come together and, and in numbers, it's, it's amazing how often government will back down, you know, rather than just, you know, escalate the issue. Well, we have um, a monopoly on force right now. Uh, held within the ranks of government, if you will. Um, and the only thing that could break that monopoly is the people just simply uniting together and saying, no, I've seen it happen. That's what happened at the Bundy Ranch. Uh, basically, my dad had rights that they were trying to claim was a privilege. They tried to take those rights by force. The American people saw the reality of what was happening and they responded. And they turn the tides. And still to this day, my father ranches on that original ranch, just as my family has five generations prior. And so I, I know it worked. I then now have seen it work many other times when people come together and just say no. And it doesn't have to be in violence or with force, but they must come together. We must come together and say no. When they try to mandate to uh, close our churches, we say no. When they try to close our businesses, we come together and say no. When they try to force us to do things with our bodies that we're not comfortable with, that we don't feel like we want to, that our conscience tells us not to, we come together and we say no. And that's really the only power strong enough to break the monopoly of uh, government power. Talk to me about the people you see showing up at these uh, these events. That you've had two of them so far. I understand they have been well attended. Um, what kind of people are interested in this message? Just everyday people, you know, um, fathers, mothers, uh, children, husbands, wives, business owners, uh, even even some uh, elected representatives. Um, and so that's that's who I'm seeing there. Uh, and the ones I have spoke to, which have been quite a bit, and the response that I've got in our meeting so far is they're equally concerned. Uh, they're looking for an answer. And I think the answer is very clear. Let's just unite as a people and say no. Well, I'm I'm encouraged to, to hear that there are actually elected officials that that are uh, that are starting to, to get on board with this as well. Talk about where you're going to be tonight. I understand you're going to be in northern Utah, up in uh, Tremonton. Yeah, I'm in Tremonton tonight, uh, seven o'clock. Um, I don't know if you have my schedule in front of me. I could get it. Here's what, but, here, uh, that's where I'm at tonight. Here's what I show is uh, 170 South, 1600 East in Tremonton, 7 o'clock tonight. Tomorrow you actually have two engagements uh, where, where you'll be uh, speaking uh, in Neptuno. I don't even know where that is, Ammon. And then you're, you're speaking in, in Salem uh, at, at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Where is Neptuno? Well, I don't know because I didn't. I actually didn't make this uh, schedule. Oh, um, I see. Never, I'm very never mind. Grateful for those that did. I got it here. But, I'm looking um, at it's the Neptuno. It's, it's the Neptuno Center in Orem. I just 
Somebody abbreviated Neptuno. I was like, holy cow, there's another, there's another city I've never heard of before. It's in Orem. <laughs> so Salem at 4 yeah. o'clock, 7 o'clock tomorrow night in Orem. And then uh, Friday you'll be in Park City. And then you got a full week next week. Now, I'm, I'm guessing people can go to uh, People's Rights, uh, the, the website, in, in order to, to learn more. Yeah, if you go to peoplesrights.org and then you go to Newsroom, uh, you can select Utah and go down and you'll see uh, an, an article of Ammon Bundy speaking in Utah, something to that effect. And it has my, uh, my schedule there and with all the addresses and times and so forth. And um, I'm just following that as well. Um, it's, they're being put together by the local area assistants in that area. And um, uh, part of the meeting is, uh, is them and the local people discussing things, which has been so, so eye-opening for me. Last night, there's uh, three women that have been arrested just on different occasions. One was in a health food store um, in Ogden, and she was trying to leave. They said she couldn't be in there without a mask. She was trying to leave. And... Uh, Officers arrested her, and she was incarcerated for 30 hours. And this was just, you know, just a, you could tell, just a really good person, um, wonderful lady, someone that you would never think would ever be arrested, um, and she was. She was arrested. Uh, two other women gave their testimony about how they were also arrested. Wow. And uh, just amazing stories. One of these one of these women was born in, in East Germany, and their family escaped to come to the United States for freedom. Um, and she was actually arrested here in the United States. Yeah, that's a pretty good indicator. we got a problem here. Um, well, Ammon, I appreciate you taking time to join me today. Um, uh, again, uh, I'll, I'll give your schedule for, for the remainder of the week a couple times before the end of the show. But um, God bless you in your travels, and, and thanks for, for going out on the road and, and talking. Hopefully I'll catch up with you one of these times as you're passing through. I hope so, too, Brian. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. That was Ammon Bundy, and again, he is speaking tonight. This, uh, this show being on the 3rd of March in uh, Tremont, Utah, 170 South, 1600 East. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we got some other fun stuff to talk about here. Did I say fun? I meant enlightening, which may be fun and it may also be infuriating. But uh, there, there's also some good news, so please stick around for that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you are a longtime wrong thinker, maybe you're just wrong think curious. You have found the place where, uh, where it's okay to explore ideas that uh, are held in disdain by those who subscribe to the 3x5 index card of approved opinion, as Tom Woods would put it. Bottom line is, I don't have all the answers. I don't know of anybody. None of the sources that I access claim to have all the answers either. But we're taking an honest stab at what's going on in front of us, trying to make sense of it, and above all, trusting you to come to the conclusion that you need to come to. Now, of course, in order to do that, I'm going to try to provide you with the best information I can. But uh, but again, 
not having all the answers myself, I will not pretend for a moment. This is everything there is. Nothing more to see. I'm grateful to have had Ammon Bundy uh, join me for a few minutes. He's a really, really busy guy, but um, I think Ammon has a message of freedom in which he has a pretty strong stake. The fact that he has actually, uh, not just figuratively, but literally suffered for his beliefs makes him a fairly credible witness when he is testifying of freedom. And so if you get the chance, if you are anywhere near uh, either Tremonton tonight or maybe in Salem or Orem tomorrow or next week, he'll be in, uh, actually, I guess Friday, he'll be in Park City. Next week in Ephraim, Richfield, and then, where is that? Okay, St. George on Wednesday, Canab on Thursday, and Roosevelt on Friday. So I would encourage you, find some time. This is not about, uh, you know, creating a, a new political movement, per se, so much as just getting people to talk to your neighbors. Know your neighbor well enough that you would be willing to stand up for your neighbor if they were in danger. And it's not just danger from government, but, uh, you know, maybe a natural disaster or, you know, a family crisis. I can't tell you how many people I have talked to in, in just the, the last few weeks who are dealing with terminal illnesses, unexpected death of a family member. Yes, even aware of a couple of COVID deaths that, uh, you know, kind of seemingly came out of the blue. I know this much. Our default position right now for pretty much, I would guess, a majority of society, I would say safely, upper 80%, probably close to 90% of society, when a problem comes up, says, well, we got to get somebody in, in government to solve this for us. Because we're trained from a very early age. I'm talking around five years of old of, of age, rather, to, to look to government or someone in authority. They they have the answers. The truth of the matter is we could and should be solving many of these problems as close as possible to the individual level, or at least at the lowest possible level. That way things don't get overly politicized and then they don't become power struggles and and, and we learn how to take care of each other, which is what real, I mean, authentic charity is based in in the first place. Oh, there's another component of that charity. It has to be voluntary. See, when government's handling all the charity for you, when you've outsourced it to the state, here, take care of this. There's poor people and there's disadvantaged people and there's people who are just down on their luck. And as Ned Flanders would say, God bless them, the ones who just don't want to work. <laughs> okay, take care of them for me. Which makes it really easy for the average person to just switch off their conscience, right? That's not your problem anymore. Yeah, they take my taxes. The taxes, they go through various programs and administrative offices and bureaucrats' hands. And Yep, they solve the problems. And I know there are a lot of things we don't want to go back to. Nobody wants to go back to living in pre-electricity times. Nobody wants to, you know, have to do without indoor plumbing. But back in the days when charity really was charity, I think we had something good, workable, taking place. In that we actively saw needs, real, legitimate needs in our community, and we took care of one another. Not because government said, yeah, I'm going to take your money and I'm going to put it to that good use, but because we recognized someone needs to step up. And most of these things were handled at the community level. It's something we've forgotten. And unfortunately, as we have forgotten that, as we've outsourced more and more of that responsibility to government, it has uh, come to see itself as, well, you know, you need me for a lot of other things, too, and started to inject itself into areas of our lives where it was never intended to go. 
And we saw that writ large this last year with all of the lockdowns and the various, you know, mandates and the demands backed by government force that were put on our backs, you know, in the name of uh, slowing the virus or avoiding spreading this virus. When we come back from the break here at the bottom of the hour, I'm going to actually give you a little bit of a, a preview of this. Jeffrey Tucker, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a very hopeful essay here about how lockdowns could reshape American politics for a generation or several. Now, I'm, I'm thinking he has taken a very optimistic point of view on this, but I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. And the gist of what he's talking about here is finally we are starting to see people go, hey, Maybe it's okay to go back to normal. It's huge that Texas yesterday announced a complete repeal of all lockdowns, including mask mandates, curfews, capacity limits, quarantines. If you are, you know, able to be open, be open for business. Florida did this clear back in what, September? So the cracks are starting to show. Why aren't these people dying like flies? You know, you can't keep that a secret forever. So really hard lockdown places like New York and New Jersey and California, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to, to lean on that to idea. Well, everybody's doing this because we have to. And here's the really encouraging part. And Jeff Tucker talks about how people are not only starting to catch on to the idea that, hey, maybe we can go back to a more normal semblance of life and it's not going to result in, you know, mass death or destruction. And in fact, while we're at it, maybe we should be looking at holding accountable some of the people who implemented some of these sometimes disastrous policies. You know, um, Cuomo, shoot, his first name escapes me. Not Fredo, but, uh, but his brother. <laughs> Sorry. Governor Cuomo in New York is facing some very serious scrutiny right now. And, and I actually heard something pointed out that made a, a little bit of sense to me. Right now, he's the, he's the subject of a big hashtag Me Too campaign. What? This politician, this powerful man who has been assured that he walks a little bit higher above the ground than most of us, the one who's been assured that he is wiser and more powerful than the rest of us and therefore more fit to make decisions affecting our lives. Oh, no. He's behaved inappropriately towards women. It's almost like he believed all the people telling him, you, sir, are made of a finer clay and the regular rules don't apply to you. I'm not excusing any misbehavior, mind you. I'm just pointing out. You keep telling people, oh, you are the greatest. You keep worshiping them as if they, they have somehow uh, a higher claim to, to do whatever they want, as opposed to they need to follow the same rules that you and I do. And yeah, they're going to take advantage of it. But isn't it curious how all of this hubbub about, well, look at him. Turns out he was a lecherous, you know, handsy kind of guy. I think all of this is to distract us from the fact that, oh, and by the way, among the most disastrous policies to come out of the whole COVID lockdown panic was his order, Governor Cuomo's order, to put infected patients into nursing homes and expose whole populations of nursing homes to a virus that was deadly to people who are sick and over 80 years of age. You know, just the kind of people you would likely find in a nursing home. Thousands upon thousands of people died as a direct result of that order. And it happened in other states. I know there were at least four Democratic governors, the governor of Michigan, I believe the governor of Pennsylvania, and the governor of New Jersey. And let's not forget, of course, uh, Governor Newsom. 
I may have accidentally added one in there that I didn't want to. But I'll tell you, they they locked things down so hard. Governor Whitmer paid off one of her health administrators who just stepped down, resigned from his office. And then, of course, they, they paid some kind of a severance package with an agreement. Neither of us may ever speak of this. Oh, that's curious timing. Because I'm sure people would like to speak with him about, hey, did your governor ask you to hide information on nursing home deaths? Kind of like uh, Governor Cuomo's uh, staff did. Ugly, ugly stuff. The bottom line is people are waking up to it. And I don't know if they're going to put up with it much longer. We'll pick that up the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. Also by Monticello College, HSL Ammo, and Pure Light. You're going to be learning more about all of them, or you can just go to the uh, sponsor links at thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, let's talk about how lockdowns could reshape the political climate for, or the political landscape, rather, uh, for a generation, maybe for several. Here's how Jeffrey Tucker puts it. He says, never before had such a globalized and comprehensive regime of closures, curfews, quarantines, travel restrictions, and surveillance been deployed for any excuse much less under the guise of virus control. A century of high-level public health practice never deployed anything like it, and that's for a reason. And the reason is no matter how bad the virus, such policies turn a challenge into a catastrophe. So everything has been put to the test. Not just politicians and public intellectuals, but everyone who has suffered under these strictures. Jeffrey Tucker says a small group of people want everyone else to accept lockdowns as fait accompli, something that just has to happen when a new virus comes along, as if it is not the permanent state of human experience to live amidst forever mutating pathogens. Now, to his credit, Jeff has, has been very consistent in his message. And, and when he says you can quickly identify the venues that don't want us asking fundamental questions, I think he's spot on here. The New York Times habitually blames the pandemic rather than the lockdowns for the breakdown of society, the depression and suicide ideation, the lost medical services, the mandatory masking, the forced human separation, the loss of our rights to associate and travel, the crushing of businesses, and it treats all dissent from lockdowns as seditious and pathogenic. He says even now, the word lockdown has stopped appearing in the newspaper of record, except as something that conservatives irrationally oppose, which is ridiculous. Jeffrey Tucker points out plenty of civil libertarians from all sides are opposed to despotic imposition, in addition to vast numbers of people with no political axe to grind at all. But the New York Times wants you to believe that only crazy people question turning society into a big jail. Fortunately, they cannot stop the debate and they cannot control the terms. And that means these questions will not go away, nor should they. Are lockdowns effective? No, he says, even if they were. Are they justified given how they upend everything we previously believed about liberty, equality, democracy, property, and law? And again, the answer is no. What if a sizable portion of the American public regards lockdowns as both ineffective and unjust? 
Well, he says, then the political ground beneath our feet will begin to quake. What can people do to prevent them from happening again? Jeff Tucker says there, to, there has to be ironclad promises never to go down this road again. There might even be a need for those responsible to compensate their victims. So he understands why politicians are looking over their shoulders right now. He says, one year into this disaster, my worry that humanity would just accept this and move on is proving unwarranted. We've been prevented from gathering in groups for most of the year, but people are starting to creep out of their homes and communities, talking to neighbors and friends and other groups. And people are discovering there is plenty of dissent out there, and it stretches across the partisan divide. He talks about uh, uh, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and how, uh, you know, every everything she said at CPAC was met with wild approval. In fact, speaker after speaker condemned the lockdowns. And he says, you know, the main point here is that this CPAC crowd, the largest gathering in Republican circles since pre-election rallies, was very animated by the anti-lockdown message. So if we can infer that the sensibilities of this group indicate something about public opinion more broadly, well, we could be looking at a generation-defining political and intellectual issue. Here's where he's coming from. Think of the big historical events that echoed for generations in American politics. The struggle over slavery, World War I, prohibition, the New Deal, World War II, the Cold War. Now, he says, the last one I know, well, having come of age in the latter years, and in retrospect, the long episode of the Cold War was packed with mythology. But still, the struggle was expressed in ideological terms of freedom versus communism. The alliances that lined up remained for decades and imparted cycle after cycle of political controversy at home and abroad. It also became deeply personal. And people chose tight and enduring alliances. The struggle with the Soviet Union shaped the politics of nearly everyone for decades. And it had all the right themes, liberty versus authoritarianism, individualism versus communism, nationalism versus private property, freedom of movement and ownership versus central planning. On which side do you stand? This question was the overriding qu political question from 1948 until 1989. Now, he says, for strange reasons of timing and loss of principle, the woke left found itself mixed up in the lockdown politics. And by the spring of 2020, many of them lined up with policies that violate the very rights they've spent decades defending. So much for the Bill of Rights, the freedom of movement, the appreciation for a classless society, and so on. But he says the left lost its soul during 2020 and thereby alienated multitudes of sane lefties who had watched in horror as their own tribe abandoned them in the favor of the authoritarianism, authoritarianism rather that they had long decried. Lockdown or not, or lockdown versus no lockdown, rather, he says this has the capacity to be a theme that will resonate far into the future. And it also unites people on the political right, again, with small business, genuine civil libertarians, and champions of religious liberty. It permits the left to again find its voice for human rights and freedoms. And for that matter, they don't have to be activists. They only need to be people who do not want their houses of worship padlocked, their business closed and bankrupted, or their speech curtailed. Now, he talks about this, uh, that uh, we, we've learned from this, the protection of Americans is not from some shadowy foreign enemy, but on its protection from our own government. 
And it also draws in the fact that uh, there are people on the left that have long been suspicious of the place of big business. And, of course, in case of the lockdowns and information regarding COVID, rightfully so. The largest corporations like Google, Amazon, Facebook, for all the good they achieve in this world, have leaned decisively in favor of lockdowns. Same with large media. And the reason isn't just that they're harmed less by lockdowns and in many cases actually benefited from them. It's because these people ruling these companies enjoy ruling class lives and they see the world through them. Lockdowns were the favored policy for cultural and political reasons, which is itself a scandal. He says there's also another group of powerful people in a position to dedicate themselves to the anti-lockdown cause. Parents. In an astonishing act of despotic ignorance, governors closed schools down all over the country with zero medical benefit and grotesque levels of abuse for children and parents. Now, these are schools that for which people pay heavily in, in property taxes, while parents using private schools end up paying twice. Governments shut them down, robbing parents of their money and smashing their settled lives. Many children in this country have lost a full year of education. Many people with two incomes had to drop one of them in order to be able to babysit their children at home as they pretended to learn on Zoom while being denied access to peers. Jeff Tucker says, as much as I've researched this, I still can't understand how this came to be. Public schools are the crown jewel legacy of the progressive era. One might expect that they would be protected against all attacks and certainly never be shut down. For decades, intellectuals and activists have urged a market-based reform of public schools. But the administrators and unions resisted any change, even while suppressing and smearing those who chose to educate their children at home. Then, in the blink of an eye, people were not only entitled to homeschool, but forced to. What was truancy one day was compliance the next. Okay, there's a ton more to this article. It's so good. Jeffrey Tucker says the, be- the true beauty of the anti-lockdown movement is that it stands, it understands profoundly that the real enemy isn't a shadowy foreign power plotting to take away our freedoms as during the Cold War. Rather, it's much closer to home. It's all around us. And while the virus is invisible, the people who dreamed up and enforced lockdowns that wrecked the country are highly visible. They have names and careers, and they are right to be very worried about their futures. I like this point, too. He says anti-lockdownism need not be partisan. The victims of these policies are all over the political map. They're united only in their general belief in human rights, constitutional restraints on government, and the need to keep society functioning, functioning rather in the midst of a health crisis. This opinion is not and should not be controversial. He says there's never a good excuse to turn on basic enlightenment values in favor of feudal forms of political organization and coerced social management. Never. Jeffrey Tucker concludes, a commitment to that principle as a first principle could dramatically realign American intellectual and political life. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, I think it means if we, if we value freedoms, starting with our own, but also including everybody else's, we've got to be willing to talk to other people. We've got to be willing to communicate and be effective in carrying that message to them, not beating it into them. Does that make sense? This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Two quick articles that I want to share with you. One of them, I'm just going to hit the high points. I shared this on Facebook. I think it was yesterday. And I shared it on the Brian Hyde Show Facebook page. Uh, You can check it out there. The headline, Family Kicked Off Their Own Property and Fined for Living Sustainably. This was published on the Free Thought Project. And in a nutshell, this took place in Polk County, Georgia. Now, 2020 was a tough year for a lot of people and for a lot of different reasons. As the government shut down the economy, driving unemployment to record levels and forcing businesses to close their doors forever, a lot of Americans found themselves in dire straits. So to deal with these unprecedented hard times, some folks like Tim Leslie and his family started to get creative. They bought property. They started homesteading, homesteading rather. But because this is the land of the free, so we tell ourselves, government officials apparently had a different idea. So last year, Leslie lost his job. And with no other options in mind, Tim Leslie bought a plot of land in Polk County, Georgia parked an RV on it and began to live off the land on the property, his property, by the way, Leslie has chickens, goats, and a vegetable garden for his wife and their two kids, nine-year-old Knox and 18-month-old Daisy. Now he told WSB television, we were going to build a home here, a forever home, growing old, giving it to our kids. After he was fired, he took his life savings, draining his pension and 401k and bought the property in Polk County. That purchase took place in November of 2020. But the family's dreams of homesteading on their property just came to a grinding halt because their city has stepped in, actually as the county has stepped in, and forced them to move. They issued the family a steep fine and then said, you need to either move or face arrest and we'll take your property away. Because apparently living on your property in an RV is illegal. Now, before he could even go to court, they showed up at his property, the building inspector, the code enforcement officer, and said, you have to be off your land or they're going to seize your vehicles and your assets. Okay, is this solving a problem or is this making it worse? Because I have some thoughts on this, but uh, to me, it seems very self-evident. This is making a problem even worse. Leslie and his family own the property. Nobody should be telling them what to do on it, especially due to the fact they're a struggling family during an unprecedented time in a pandemic. And secondly, he checked the law before he made these moves. He was following the law. But the authorities flexed on them. And because of that, they're, they're forcing them to, to move off of their land. They, they threatened them with massive fines, citing several codes for kicking the family off their property, extorting them, threatening to steal their property. None of the things that were cited, though, were things they were actually doing. There is no legitimate basis for them to kick the family off their property. There is nothing that says they can or can't have a camper on their property. But you don't tell a bureaucrat that because they'll sit there and try to compile this mishmash of ordinance applications in order to be able to say, no, you can't do that. You need our permission. Oh, and you have to pay us. Look, I don't share this stuff with the intent of, I hope this, this one's going to make you mad. But if you're not at least a little bit bothered by what I've just shared with you, I mean, this family only wanted to be left alone. They're trying to live a sustainable life on their own property. What good is accomplished by the state stepping in and forcing them even further to the margins of society, as well as taking precious money out of their budget? 
People are struggling financially. You know why they're struggling? Because government shut down their businesses, told them they're not essential. Boy, if there was a way to get that in front of a jury, I would think that the jury would be able to see very quickly what's going on. But there's a point here, too. You know, if you equate tyranny, well, that's what Joe Biden and the Democrats and Congress are working on. It, it happens at every level. Polk County, Georgia, I don't think is a major metropolis. But look at how some of their officials behave, right? Clothed in a little bit of authority. Ooh, if a little bit's good, a lot's going to be even better. Would you stand by and watch your neighbors abused for something like that? Worse yet, would you be the neighbor who said, "Uh, yeah, I'm calling the code enforcement office because I don't like the fact that my neighbor has an RV on his property. I think it may reflect poorly on my own property. Because if that's the approach you're taking, I'm look, I'm sorry, this is going to sound judgmental, but there's something wrong with your heart, especially if you can't take in the bigger picture of, you know, there are a lot of people trying to do the best they can under very, very difficult circumstances. That sure looks a lot more like just screwing with somebody because you can, as opposed to, hey, I'm sorry to step in here, but there's an actual wrong taking place that I need to correct. I found an article by Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center. This is from the godarchy.org podcast page. And Mike Meharry, this was written back in October of 2020, asks the question, why do we trust these people to run our lives? And I'm going to ask you that question to apply it, not just at the federal level or the state level, but right down to the local level. Why do we trust these people to run our lives? Mike says, I became a journalist because I love to write. In fact, most people tend to pursue career paths related to things that interest them if they have any choice in the matter. A person who likes to bake might become a baker. A person who likes numbers might become an accountant. A person who loves animals and biology might become a veterinarian. I would add to that, a person who doesn't like to have money will go into broadcast. (laughs) Okay, I kid. So what does a person who likes to control other people do? Well, the answer is become a politician. Mike Meharry says, think about it. If various jobs tend to attract people with certain interests and personalities, we should probably be wary of those attracted to government service. Because at its core, government is about ruling over others. And a person who wants to govern other people probably shouldn't be given the opportunity. He says, watching a bunch of government officials gleefully exercising their suddenly expansive powers in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic reinforced his opinion on this. Some of them clearly get off on the power trip. They thrived in the spotlight. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir parlayed the pandemic role into a sex symbol. Others, like Maryland Governor Larry, we're not playing around Hogan, took more of a tough guy approach. These people seem to revel in ratcheting up the lockdown each day, says Mike Meharry. They lecture us like benevolent fathers and then authorize their minions to lock us in cages if we dare resist their edicts. Now, he says, when I was a kid, I actually believed that government officials got their positions because they were exceptionally smart and knew a lot about the issues. I imagined them uniquely qualified to make policy. And he says, I think, I still, I think a lot of adults still believe this fairy tale. But after working with politicians at every level of government for over a decade, Mike Meharry says, I can emphatically tell you a lot of them don't know squat about squat. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I've literally had to explain to a bill sponsor what their own bill was intended to do. And he says this has happened more than once. 
Maybe it's just me, but that seems less than ideal. So here's the ugly truth. Most politicians don't get into office because they're smart or knowledgeable about the issues. The vast majority get into office because they are good at two things. Number one, raising money. Number two, convincing people to vote for them. Neither of those skill sets screams, trust me, to run your life. Actually, he says, I don't think anyone's qualified to run my life other than me, but that's the subject for a different article. Now, he says, I probably shouldn't paint with a broad brush, but I do know a handful of politicians. I consider genuine public servants who possess a strong grasp of the issues. A few are even genuinely committed to liberty, but most of them just want power. In fact, he says, I'm going to take it a step further. I believe a lot of politicians are sociopaths. Now, that may seem like hyperbole, but look at these characteristics of a sociopath and then tell me that politicians, or a lot of politicians, don't fit the bill. So the sociopath is, is known by their glibness and superficial charm. They're manipulative and cunning. They never recognize the rights of others and see their self-serving behaviors as permissible. They may appear charming, yet they're covertly hostile and domineering, seeing their victim as merely an instrument to be used. They may dominate and humiliate their victims. They have a grandiose self of self, sense of self rather. They feel entitled to certain things as their right. They're prone to pathological lying. They have no problem lying coolly and easily, and it's almost impossible for them to be truthful on a consistent basis. They can create and get caught up in a complex belief about their own powers and abilities, extremely convincing, sometimes even able to pass lie detector tests. There's a lack of remorse, shame, or guilt. A deep-seated rage which is split off and repressed is at their core. They don't see others around them as people, just as targets and opportunities. They have victims and accomplices who end up as victims, rather than friends. The end always justifies the means, and they let nothing stand in their way. They have shallow emotions, incapacity for love, need for stimulation. They like to live on the edge. Verbal outbursts and physical punishments are normal. Promiscuity and gambling are common. Yeah, does this remind you of any politicians you've heard of within recent memory? The bottom line is... Why would you trust these people to run your life? They're not wise. They're not benevolent. They don't have your best interests at heart. They don't care about you. As Mike Meharry says, the faster we realize that, the better off we'll be. This is The Brian Hyde Show.